our beer of the week this week comes to us from Victory Brewing because, you know, we finally got a win. Our Panthers are victorious over the Houston Texans, and we got the Sour Monkey this week to celebrate. A thrilling 15-13 victory. It got a little dicey there at the end with all the uh, hubbub with the special teams play, but glad we could pull out the dub. This is Perfect Takes. I'm your host, Stephen Patton, joined by my co-host and friend, Jacob LaCroix. We have a lot to get into. First, we'll start with that Texans game. What were some of the big takeaways that you had from this past Sunday? Well, it, it was kind of more of the same. We had a little bit of differences. First of all, Thomas Brown, this was his first game calling plays. I thought uh, our offense, like moving down the field, was certainly better. In the red zone, it was still kind of uh, kind of stagnant, kind of predictable. But we were able to move the ball better, I thought. Yeah, no, there definitely seemed to be a lot more ball movement. We had, like, I believe four, like, kind of full drives in the first half. The last two kind of went uh goal line the goal line like you said we kind of sputtered in the red zone but we don't really have any true red zone threat uh we lost foreman in the offseason this past year uh we haven't gone really heavy in terms of 12 personnel or bringing in a six o line so it makes it just very disadvantageous when defenses kind of are able to crowd the box and just kind of take away different things that we're able to use in between the 20s well, it's funny you mentioned that we don't have a red zone threat because, you know, today's the trade deadline. We're recording at right around 3, 3.30 on Tuesday, and the deadline ends at 4. So throughout the day, we'll give opinions on any trades that happen. Hopefully, we can get a like a true red zone threat, maybe a Cortland Sutton or Judy, or with the commanders having the fire sale that they've been having, maybe Terry McLaurin is out there available, but you're right there. We had no true weapon in the red zone. Tommy Tremble caught another touchdown in this past game. We also made it to the red zone and sputtered out, I believe on a, a, a full, like straight first, second, third, fourth down, couldn't convert. And then we had a couple field goals, but uh, overall, I think the game was much, much better than what we saw in the Frank Reich play calling era. And I want to note that there, there was no real bad game management as Reich was able to focus on the game instead of calling plays no wasted timeouts no like bad challenges we got the play calls in pretty early in the uh the play clock like, like it was good all around uh from an execution standpoint and we have an easier slate upcoming and we'll get more into the colts game later on in the podcast but it's one of these things that this is something that you can build upon and probably actually see growth and development from not only bryce young but hopefully like a jonathan mingo and Unfortunately, Iki Aquano is still having a lot of growing pains. He's struggling to kind of work on with stunts. I can't tell you how many times the inside guy kind of swings out and he's inside trying to help with the guard and he's not in position to kind of take that guy or they'll send a blitzer in kind of that area. And it's it's rough. It's rough to kind of see those spurts. And then there's times where he's getting pushed back as a as a grown man. And it's just like one of those things like you got to be able to hold your ground and be able to know your assignment. And that's something that he just hasn't done well so far. Yeah, I think on that game winning drive, we started at around the 20. But uh, on the first play, Icky gave up a sack. It was like a 10 yard sack to, I believe, Jonathan Grenard. So we en it ended up being like a 92 yard or in it in a field goal, but it was like a 90 plus yard drive. And it, yeah, Icky's just got to be better. I don't know what it is. He's in the, the sophomore slump of all sophomore slumps. But back to that game winning drive, I thought Bryce Young was excellent pinpoint on that drive. We had a, he dealt with a couple drops throughout the game and one big one on that drive with Hayden Hurst, but he bounced back and was able to convert the ball, 
uh, even on a fourth down play, which was uh, kind of dicey where it w- there were like two receivers in the same area, but we still converted. And uh, Steady Eddie kicked the field goal for the win, bouncing back after the missed extra point on our lone touchdown. Yeah, that's what had me worried. It was like, if this is a tie game, I feel like there's absolutely no pressure on him to make it. But it was the fact that we were down. It's like, this is technically a make it or break it kind of situation. I felt would kind of eat away at him when he was kicking it, even though they moved up like 15 yards both times. Like it went from like a 40 plus yard field goal to like a chip shot, which I mean, that that makes your job easier as a kicker. Um, Defensively, the the one thing I can say about Evero's defensive scheme and style uh, kind of coming from a Vic Fangio, Raheem Morris, Brandon Staley, all kind of intertwined. A lot of those guys kind of run similar concepts is that they want to be able to take away the passing game. And for the third game this year, we've held the opposing quarterback to under 200 yards passing. We did it with Ritter week one. We did it with Kirk Cousins when he came to Charlotte. And then again, this past week against CJ Stroud. And so it's one of those things that he does a really good job taking that away. Unfortunately, we've allowed 100 yards rushing in every single game this year. And it doesn't look like that's going to change, especially with the state of our defensive line. Yeah, the run defense is certainly something uh, to be disappointed in. But like you were talking about the pass defense, we held Stroud, who's been pretty lights out in his rookie season, to under 200 yards. I believe it was 140 exactly. And he didn't really face a ton of pressure like he hasn't throughout the season. But still, uh, Dante Jackson and C.J. Henderson had pretty decent games in coverage, not allowing anything over the top. All the... uh, the good passes were just in front of the defense and they were able to tackle them and stop them on third downs and force some punts. Absolutely. And it seems like when they're playing in front of the home crowd, our defense does play a lot better, especially the secondary. Uh, So I wonder if that plays an element into it. But like you said, overall, just uh, between the game management, between the play calling, between the outcome of the game, it was just a really exciting time. And it gives you a lot of hope for the future because this is kind of what we envision the team to kind of be going into the season. Absolutely. And uh, in terms of looking forward to the future, I think that kind of relates to our player of the game this week. It's got to be Bryce Young. This was, uh, I think, his best game so far. He's improved every uh, week throughout the year, but I think this was his best showing, uh, moving around the pocket, outside the pocket, making tight window throws. I think the big one that I want to highlight is the uh, it was where Chuba picked up the blitz. He didn't really pick him up. The blitzer like tackled him and almost sacked Bryce. Bryce spins out of it to the left and then wrist flick about 35 yards down the field to Adam Thielen who catches it in traffic. It was just a really heads up, uh, good evasive play from Bryce. And that's the kind of stuff we're going to need to see moving forward. If we continue to have O-line struggles like we're having. Yeah, no, without a doubt, that's something that we need to keep in mind. He got sacked again, six times this past Sunday. I, I think some of it is his fault. He's trying to make a play and, and do his part since the wide receivers are struggling to separate. But it's one of those things he's just got to learn to play another down. And if it doesn't look good, get the ball out of your hands, go to the next down, go to the next play. Let's see what we can do then. Uh, because taking those negative plays aren't going to help the offense move down the field either. I think that's all we have for the game that we just played. And then kind of moving to around the NFL, like we talked about, this is the the trade deadline. And so deadline spur action. So we've seen quite a few trades over the past week and probably the most today. I think the big ones have been... Last week, Philly trading for Kevin Byard from the Titans for basically nothing. I think uh, I think we can agree that Philly won that one there because their secondary has not been great to start the year despite their big names there. And I think that's a, a huge get for them because Kevin Byard 
I don't I don't remember if it was last year or two years ago, but he's not too far removed from being an all pro. Yeah, no, he's he's not too far removed from that status. He is a little bit older. I think he's about 31. And so what you're really looking for is a veteran presence back there, the help with communication. And obviously this past weekend, we'll get more into it when we talk about the games, but against Washington, obviously Sam Howell was able to dice that secondary. That's what you're hoping a guy like him is able to fix kind of moving forward, especially when you have to play offenses that are a lot more potent over the next stretch. When you're playing the Dallas Cowboys with Dak Prescott, when you're playing the Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes, when you're playing the... Uh, who, who are some of the other teams that are uh, upcoming? But like they, they, they just have a lot of those games upcoming. San Francisco, Brock Purdy isn't necessarily a guy to write home about, but it's some of these offenses are definitely potent and they have the big playability. And so you need to be able to rein that in and stop that. Now, another trade that did come through, and these are some of the uh, lesser ones today, uh, still big name, Giants trade defense alignment, Leonard Williams to Seattle for a second rounder next year and a fifth rounder the following year. Uh, he's playing phenomenal football this year. He's on an awful football team. And right now the Seahawks with Nuozo, uh, Uchenna Nuozo being on IR for the rest of the year with a torn pec. This is a great, great addition to that defensive line. They already had Draymond Jones, uh, Boye Mafe, who you've been huge on. Uh, he has been lights out to start the year. So they're definitely trying to have some D-line depth for a push, especially for another trade that went down in the NFC West, big name. You want to talk about Chase Young heading to San Francisco? Absolutely. Uh, Chase Young is going to San Francisco for a conditional third round pick. It's going to be one of their compensatory picks that they're going to get either from uh, D'Amico Ryan's leaving to be the head coach of the Texans or maybe Mike McGlinchey. But uh, Chase Young is heading to San Francisco. It's like a month ago they got uh, Randy Gregory from Denver after – I think they traded for him. I don't think that was a cut and sign. I think they traded for him. They get Chase Young. And uh, that D-line is just deadly. And Chase Young wasn't even the only Washington edge rusher to be traded today. Montez Sweat also was traded to Chicago for a second-round pick from Chicago, which, if all holds true, is going to be like a top 35 pick. So – you trade Chase Young for a, a comp third round pick. So in the 90s or maybe around 100. But you, you get a top 35 pick for Montez Sweat. Just seems like another, uh, another kind of bad trade at the deadline from the Chicago Bears GM. His name is it's Ryan Poles, I believe. Yep. Uh, yeah, kind of like last year when they traded pick 32 for Chase Young. Now, I'm not saying Montez Sweat is as bad as Chase Young is. Sweat's had an excellent year so far, but I kind of like Chase Young a bit better. He's younger. Uh, I don't think – or I think he's also a free agent because they didn't extend the fifth-year option, but he's younger. I think he has more upside. But, man, San Francisco gave up way less to get him than uh, Chicago did for Montez Sweat. It gives off exactly like what you were saying, the Chase Claypool vibes from last year at the trade deadline, like giving up a second round pick, like ultimately it was like really like an end of a first round pick when you're kind of considering where that pick is and, and the prospects that you kind of have the ability to grab there. And they do it again this year. And like you said, it's, it's for a player that's probably... I, I mean, you, you understand the injury uh, history and maybe the proneness that Chase Young has, but when you look at it from a pass rush win rate from ESPN, right now Chase Young ranks 11th this year out of 57 qualifiers. Monte Sweat ranks 52nd. 
And mm-hmm. so like, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that like, what are you doing? And then you turn around and you look at the 49ers, they get a comp pick from uh, Mike McGlinchey signing with the Denver Broncos this past year. It's going to be a third round pick and they'll probably get a third round pick when Chase Young walks in free agency this next year. So they're able to kind of retain and, and retool their team as they go along. And you have a team like Chicago Bears that are just flushing picks down the toilet. And another thing is that San Francisco only owes Chase Young 560000 for the rest of the season. That's that's basically nothing on the books for them. So just an excellent trade all around. And I will say for Washington, it seems like they're throwing the towel in on this season, looking towards the future. So it's good that they are able to get things for both of these guys who, like, I don't think they would have been able to retain both of them or either of them maybe in free agency. So good on them for making those trades. Another big one that – uh, I would say medium-sized trade that just came down. I'm typing it in as we were talking about these. The Packers are trading uh, Panthers fan favorite Rasul Douglas to the Bills. The Bills have needed some secondary help. They've been uh, healthy scratching their first-round pick from a couple of years ago. And uh, they finally get a competent corner to join their secondary. And that's huge. I mean, we, we talked about it last week. They still need help in the interior defensive line, the linebacker position. But this is a step in the right direction, especially when Trey White is out for the year again. Uh, some other contenders that are kind of shoring up some needs. I like the fact that Jacksonville went out, traded for Ezra Cleveland. He's an interior offensive lineman. He's played guard for the Minnesota Vikings the past couple of years. And they they only traded a six-round pick for him. And one of the issues, I think, if you were to look at Jacksonville and especially their offense, is that interior offensive line. They have Cam Robinson at left tackle. Um, they went out and they grabbed a, a Anton Harrison in the draft this past year. So they, they have the, the bookends, and it's more just making sure that they can keep a clean pocket for Trevor Lawrence so he can do his thing. Absolutely. I loved watching Cleveland when he was at Boise State a couple years ago. Uh, another team, the contending team that went out and got something, the Detroit Lions traded for the Donovan Peoples-Jones wide receiver from the Browns. They give up a sixth rounder, so kind of kind of a similar trade in terms of compensation and uh, just another good trade for them to bolster their wide receiver depth. All these trades for like cheap trades have me thinking like, what is Scott Fitterer doing, man? Like, I know we're one and six right now, but with his track record of draft picks he's not going to be making good picks anyway. So, like, if we could have gotten Chase Young for a third, like, come on, man. I would have done that pretty quick. But that's – I guess that's neither here nor there. But, uh, yeah, this is more Scott Shitter or slander, as Dylan Jackson would say. Now, uh, going back to the Minnesota Vikings, they also wheeled and dealed a little bit. They tried to replace Kirk Cousins in a sense – uh, and it was interesting because it kind of people spotted this from miles away a couple of days back when Josh Dobbs was announced to not be the starter for the following week's game after last week. And so everybody thought that meant he'd be on the trade block. And sure enough, Arizona sends Josh Dobbs and a seventh round pick to Minnesota for their sixth round pick, I believe, in the 24 draft. So. A lot of, lot of moving pieces, a lot of low names. I think the only other one that's happened in the past couple of days that's worth mentioning is Eagles traded defensive lineman uh, Contavious Street and a seventh round pick to Atlanta for their sixth round pick. So very similar structure to the Josh Dobbs trade. And that's, that's about it. So uh, we will update if there are a couple more uh, trades that happen until the four o'clock window, but 
for now, we'll get into the Eagles-Commanders game. Uh, that was a 38-31 finish, uh, just as thrilling as the overtime finish a few weeks back when they were in Philadelphia and the Eagles won 34-31. Yeah, every time these teams play, it seems to be a barn burner. I guess they figured each other out defensively because both offenses always seem to go off. I think this was a great game for Sam Howell, who was the most sacked QB coming into this game, but only took one sack the entire game. So that's some good growth from him. Uh, it was also a great game from Jalen Hurts. I think both QBs had uh, – I know Howell had four touchdowns. I think Hurts also Hertz had, had four touchdowns. He had four passing touchdowns. Yeah. Two were to A.J. Brown. One was to Devontae Smith. And then one – And then one was to Julio Jones, who I had forgotten was on the team. I remember watching it. I was like, who is 80 on the Eagles? But then uh, Scott Hansen came on a couple minutes later because it was on red zone. He was like, oh, Julio Jones touchdown sighting. <laughs> I was like, man, Julio Jones catching touchdowns in the year 2023. But no, it was an excellent game from the offensive perspective. But I think both defenses have some pretty serious question marks. Well, before before we touch on the defenses, I will say the Eagles were moving the ball at will throughout the entire game, and they had two fumbles that were very uncharacteristic in the red zone, which I think like ultimately changed how they put the game out of reach because they were still down about seven points with less than 10 minutes to go in the fourth quarter. So this was a game they had by no means they had to claw themselves back into. And then when they did take a two-touchdown lead at that point, I think there was about two minutes left in the clock. Um but defensively, I think Washington came into the game and knowing Ron Rivera, uh, knowing kind of the mentality of, oh, if we can stop the run, then then we can then worry about the pass. And sure enough, he held the, the Eagles to less than three yards per carry. Um, but Jalen Hurts torched him on the outside. Emmanuel Forbes still does not look good. Is it St. Saint, Saint Saint- yeah, Benjamin St. Just, yeah. He is he's awful like that is yeah. that's replacement level type stuff where we just saw Rasul Douglas get traded that they should be looking to add in a couple guys like I think Jalen Johnson's available from the Bears like had you been able to swap uh, Monte Sweat and him and then still get like a third or fourth I thought that hey, would have been Dante perfect. Jackson's available too I mean it could be uh, going after him but no like you're saying uh St. Juice just isn't good. I think he was a fifth rounder when he came into the league. I wasn't a huge fan of him coming out of Minnesota. And then again with Emmanuel Forbes, we talk about this every other week. He's an he has excellent ball skills, but he's just too small to play in the NFL. If he's matching up against Devontae Smith, maybe because they're similar in terms of body type, but Devontae Smith can route him up. But then if he's on the other side and has to match up against AJ Brown, mm-hmm. AJ Brown doesn't even have to create separation. He'll just, he can just grab him and walk beside him the whole way and catch it with one hand. Like that's just the way it's going to work against a guy like AJ Brown, who has like a Julio prime Julio Jones body type. So it's just not going to work there. And uh, like you're saying, Hertz was able to dice them up. And then Howell also had a pretty good game through the air and they did deal with some drops at the end of the game. And a couple of them were from Terry McLaurin. But uh, yeah, this an overall just a barn burner, good passing game from both teams, but some clear improvements need to be made. And as we can see so far, at least Philly has committed to improving their weak point on their defense. Absolutely. And that that's, it's kind of what sucks when you look at the Eagles team, because if their front four gets after the quarterback, they can control the game. Unfortunately, Sam Howell, he was able to mitigate the mistakes that he's been known for with taking a lot of sacks. And with that gone, he was able to slice and dice just like what we talked about with Jalen Hurts doing. And so it's one of those things you 
you trade for a Kevin Byard, you need him to step up. You need big play Slay to step up. You need James Bradbury to step up. And if they don't step up, it's it's going to be a very long season because these next six games are going to be rough. Absolutely. And then another game that wasn't as big of a barn burner that I wanted to talk about, but it did have a QB that threw for four touchdowns, was the Tennessee Oilers slash Titans against the Atlanta Falcons. Will Levis started in this game. He made his debut, and he had a pretty good rookie debut. He threw for four touchdowns. Three were to DeAndre Hopkins, who had a very Randy Moss on Thanksgiving stat line. It was like four catches for 120-something yards and three touchdowns. And he also threw one to uh, Nick Westbrook-Akine. But uh, he had some a pretty good game for his rookie debut. I thought he moved the ball downfield pretty well. He had some misses in the short game, but that was kind of his uh, his calling card coming into the league. But I thought he performed well in his first start. I thought Tim Kelly, the game plan that they made this week, they really did hone in on Will Levis's strengths. He's got a big arm. He's had a cannon. Everybody knew that coming out of Kentucky. It was one of the things that a lot of like draft analysts thought would put him as a top 10 pick. And sure enough, he, he had that on full display. Now, DeAndre Hopkins, he makes A.J. Terrell look silly on the first one. Um, the f- second touchdown to DeAndre Hopkins was a slant route. He was a little late on, but Will Levis still put it on Hopkins' body. And then the last one, I, Hopkins burned right past the safety. So it's one of those things that you wonder if the coverage gets a little bit tighter. They take away that first read. He has to start going to other reads. Will Will Levis still have the same success? And when you look at his success rate, it wasn't – something that popped off the charts. His EPA per play was a modest 0.11, which is solid. That's that's good quarterback play, but it doesn't screen the four touchdown passes and the highlight reels that we were seeing on Sunday. So that's the only thing I'm worried about. Is this something that he can consistently do week in and week out? Because he's definitely got a big arm. The question is, our defense is going to be able to shut that out, shut that down and force him to kind of play underneath. Yeah, he definitely has some uh, steps where he needs to improve as a QB overall. But I think he showed what uh, he showed on the scouting report, biggest arm in the class, and was able to make the downfield throws when they were open. So I thought that was a good performance for him. Good performance by uh, Skaronski in the O-line as well, I think. Uh, On the other side of the – oh, do you have something – No, no, I I agree. It's one of those things that the Falcons defensive line isn't necessarily something to write home about. So you wonder, okay, if Will Levis face is a little bit more pressure in the next couple of weeks, like they play the Jaguars, like it does their offensive line hold up. Does Will Levis have the time to make some of those throws? And it's going to be cool to kind of keep an eye on and watch. But like you were alluding to. The quarterback on the other side wasn't looking too good. I know we've used the phrase Scott Shitter, but I think Desmond Shitter er. It should should be in the running as well. Uh, I, I want to go with Desmond Mitter maybe because he's at least shown something this year. But uh, yeah, he didn't have a great game. Uh, the only thing he was really doing was running the ball effectively, like on scrambles. I think he dealt with a fumble this game as well. And then he was taken out of the game. I initially thought he was just benched for his performance, but then later we learned that he is in the concussion protocol. So that's probably the main reason Taylor Heineke had to come in. I didn't think he was super great either, but according to like his EPA per play and stuff like that, he was had a pretty good game, definitely better than Levis. But uh, he, he was able to at least move the ball down the field. 
I think the big thing to clue in with Taylor Heineke is Desmond Ritter pretty much played the whole first half. Uh, the only points that Ritter scored was an opening field goal when uh, I believe you see we've said Will Levis so many times. I'm going to get the other quarterback, Malik Willis. Uh, he actually took the first snap, fumbled it. Falcons recovered it, and then they took a field goal from there. Didn't score the rest of the half. Heineke comes in at halftime. They drive down. They score two field goals. They make it a 14-9 game. And then the next two possessions, Heineke scores touchdowns, but the Titans also scored touchdowns. So it was a little out of reach. Game ended 28-23. Heineke had an EPA per play of .27, which was pretty solid. Uh, he actually had more total EPA than Will Levis on the day, even though he played half a game. Uh, and his dot was pretty solid at about 10. So you wonder if if Ritter is out with this concussion for a week or two, does Heineke, is he able to di distribute and almost operate this offense a little bit better? We saw him operate Washington's offense pretty well over the past couple of years in a couple tight pinches. So you wonder if he's kind of able to continue kind of that Ryan Fitzpatrick magic because he's just a journeyman backup at this point in his career. I will say I think the skilled players around Heineke had better performances when he was in there compared to Desmond Ritter. Uh, that might be related to just him just hitting open receivers and stuff like that. But even players like Bijan Robinson were moving better with Heineke handing him the ball than Ritter. So I don't maybe they have just a little more faith in Heineke, but I thought the offense as a whole moved the ball better with Heineke than Ritter. And moving on to the last game, a game that I think had a lot of hype going into it as potentially a defensive slugfest. We actually had a decent amount of offense within the game, but it was the Seattle Seahawks hosting the Cleveland Browns. And I think it's fair to say at this point in the season, we're about halfway through, that this Seahawks defense is pretty damn legit. I agree, and like we talked about earlier, they have some help on the way with Leonard Williams, and they signed Frank Clark recently as well. So their defense is only going to keep getting better. Uh, I, I won't say that the Cleveland Browns are an offensive juggernaut by any means. P.J. Walker is not a good starting QB in this league, and the run game just hasn't been the same since Nick, since Nick Chubb went down. But the defense did do a great job in this game, and those uh, nice throwback unis that they were sporting. Yeah, no, the Seahawks, the offense churned out uh, points very quickly in the game. First two drives, uh, they scored touchdowns. Uh, first was their opening drive down the field. Tyler Lockett had a lot of uh, pivotal catches. And then I believe the second scoring drive was actually caused by Boye Mafe turnover. Uh, it was like a fumble. And Tyler Lockett ended up being on the receiving end of the touchdown. Now, they only scored 24 points the whole game. And so the Browns defense was able to make some adjustments, forced Geno Smith into a couple of mistakes. There was a batted pass that ended up being picked. Uh, and then what ended up leading to the game-winning touchdown for the Seahawks was a batted pass by P.J. Walker that was intercepted and led to the game-winning touchdown to JSN. So uh, definitely a lot of uh, highlight reel type plays. Miles Garrett wasn't too loud in terms of production like he was last week in Indianapolis. So uh, props to Charles Cross and their game plan to kind of mitigate him. Uh, was there anything else you kind of took away from this game? I think the main thing, just like you were talking about, was how Cross and the rest of the O-line kind of neutralized Garrett. We've seen throughout his career and particularly this season how impactful Miles Garrett can be in wrecking a game. And he didn't really have the opportunity to do that in this game. So huge props to the O-line for keeping Geno upright because I think last week Geno had a decent game. But like the past th two or three weeks before that, Geno wasn't at his best. So 
having good protection this game was paramount against a very good Browns defense. We talk about Jim Schwartz like every other week and how good their defense is on paper. So I think that was the big story of this game. Well, we talked about earlier, Uchenna Nwozo. He's on IR for the rest of the year. Charles Cross started off the year banged up. Abraham Lucas is still kind of banged up. I think he's on like the temp IR right now. And so if he's able to come back here soon, then you have your two bookend tackles. They're clearly shoring some stuff up from the offensive line. And the run game's been going. Kenneth Walker, Zach Charbonnet looks like a solid thunder-lightning combo. And like I was talking about with Tyler Lockett, what was cool to see on the Brown side is Amari Cooper was making plays left and right. He was a chain mover, and it was just kind of cool to see these reliable pass catchers just making uh, really clutch plays down the stretch to keep this game interesting. Because for a while, the Browns were up 20 to 17 up until that last drive. Yeah, I wasn't able to catch the end of the game, but it seems like the Seattle defense put in the work there and got got done what they needed to do towards the end. Now that wraps up the around the NFL section. We will, like I said earlier, keep any updates on any more trades that come through in the next, what, eight minutes now? It's 352. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that, but we're now transitioning into the coach talk. And we typically start with coaches on the hot seat. And the guy that we're going to start with, we already kind of talked about this game a little bit, but it's Arthur Smith. Uh, Pete Carmichael was 32nd last week in the play caller rankings. We talked about how his head needed a, a job, needed to be on the table, pink slip maybe handed to him. He bounced back with a great game against the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, they dropped 38 points. The offense was clicking. He jumped up a several spots. I think he was the biggest riser in this past week's play caller rankings to about 16. So he's right around where Sean Payton is. But that means Arthur Smith is now the worst offensive play caller on top of just being an abysmal uh, game manager, it feels like, in terms of personnel and uh, just utilizing the players that he spent a lot of picks on. Yeah, and when people like reporters ask him about that, um, and he kind of treats it like, oh, this isn't fantasy football. We're going to do what we need to do to win. Well, you drafted three premium athletes at skill positions in the top 10 and aren't using them maybe not as traditionally or not as effectively in terms of touch count. I don't think that has anything to do with fantasy football. I think giving the ball to B. John Robinson, who we can see is leagues above Cordero Mm -hmm. Patterson's corpse or Tyler Algier in talent, throwing the ball to people like Van Jefferson, who dropped the fourth down pass that lost the mm-hmm. game for them instead of Drake London, or giving the ball to Janu Smith in the backfield, who threw it to Miko Pruitt in the end zone, instead of to instead of your like athletic unicorn freak and Kyle Pitts. I think no, he was blocking things, that play. That was yeah, that was the yeah. wild part. Yeah, I, I think these are the things people have questions about, not the fact that oh my my players aren't getting their points for fan. No, it's about you. You're not utilizing the players that the front office has invested so much in for your offense, especially when you don't have good QB play. And I think that just kind of all that combining with the fact that this was the year that they were kind of going all in. They spent a ton of money on defense. They have the draft pedigree on offense. And while they may be, I think they're still the head of the division, um, but they're a 500 or they're yep. no, they're uh, I think they're four and three, but um, I like, they're not impressive this year. They're not a good football team. Nobody in this division is, but they should be running away with the division compared to the other teams, and it's just not happening. 
I think I think he's trying to galaxy brain this thing too much. Like there's an element of yes, I I completely understand that if they're expecting Pitts to get the ball, he's your pass catching tight end. They're probably going to lean the coverage to his side, put their better coverage linebacker on him. And you might have in a couple instances or a couple plays throughout the games ability to do kind of that trick play they did with Janu Smith throwing to their backup tight end. But you that, that seems to be the playbook when it gets rolled out. It's not, okay, let's feed our stars, and then in a couple moments, let's run some more gimmicky plays and, and get the ball into other playmakers' hands. It's it's That's how the offense runs, and it's just sad to see because, like you said, he's he's up there trying to make it seem like it's a smart idea to have B. John Robinson on a, a touch count when it's like you're losing games. Like, get your stars out there and get them making plays. Like that's, that's why you brought them into the building. It's just, it's very head scratching top to bottom. Another guy that's obviously made a lot of head scratching moves uh, between personnel decisions and in-game management is Ron Rivera. And we talked about how the commander shipped off two of their premium pass rushers, uh, part of that defensive line that had a bunch of first round talent on it. And it seems like the writing is on the wall for him at this point. Do you think he he makes it to the end of the year? I think they're gonna let him finish the year out just as a respect thing. But uh, like yeah, like you're saying, trading away two first round pick edge rushers, and just the season as a whole isn't going as good as they think it was, or maybe they thought it would be. I know that they said before this past week that pending the outcome of the game, they're either gonna not trade players or trade players. To go out and say something like that, like on to the media, kind of like shows me at least that they're just not committed to this season if this game outcome decides that. And obviously they lost to the Eagles and they haven't been great in the division. Couldn't even beat the uh, the hapless Giants a couple weeks ago. I think the writing's on the wall. It's been on the wall. And uh, yeah, I don't think he makes it past this season. But I do think he can make it to the end of the season just out of like out of respect for Ron. Absolutely. And some of the reports I'm seeing, I don't know how accurate they are, but it's pretty much that behind closed doors, uh, Eric Bieniemy is kind of the head coach just without the title. And I'm assuming if he is fired midseason, Bieniemy will then be the interim head coach for the remainder of the season. So we'll see how all that plays out. It's just very interesting to kind of see a couple franchises that are it's weird because the Falcons are still in playoff contention, um, but they actually lost to the commanders a few weeks ago, which just shows like, to the detriment, the commanders playing in the NFC East, if they they were in the NFC South the past few years, it might be a little bit different because you're in a weaker division. Uh, they might have won last year and they'd be making a push this year. And it kind of changes your outcome and in, in the trajectory to where they may not ship out these edge rushers. Absolutely. But unfortunately, they are in the NFC East. And some other coaches that are currently in the NFC East that actually brought the heat this week are Mike McCarthy and Dan Quinn. So we've we've talked about Mike McCarthy at length on this podcast. We probably will continue to do so. I think what's very interesting when you see how he schemes different things up, it goes back to the point I was making about Arthur Smith a little bit earlier ago, is that he's trying to galaxy brain this, and he's not just simply like, hey, how can I get the ball to my star players and let them make plays? And that's exactly what McCarthy did on Sunday. He schemed up so many play designs where Dak Prescott and CeeDee Lamb were in sync. I mean, CeeDee Lamb had 14 targets, 12 receptions. He had a couple touchdowns, and he just could not be stopped by the Rams secondary. 
And then Dak was sprinkling it in. He had a beautiful touchdown pass to Jake Ferguson. Uh, he had another one, the Brandon Cooks later in the game that pretty much ice it. And it's just very, very cool to see McCarthy's aerial attack kind of taking form and shape in Dallas, especially now that it's not Aaron Rodgers, the guy who's doing it. We're actually getting to see McCarthy and what he can bring to an offense. And it's letting his stars make plays. And we see that on the defensive side as well. Parsons lining up over center, getting different uh, good looks that kind of get after Matthew Stafford and make plays on the ball and uh, bland with the pick six, a great play design and scheme and recognition of understanding where Stafford wanted to go with the ball in that play. So just a lot of cool things top to bottom. Were there things that you saw from the game, uh, whether it was something McCarthy's kind of schemes, Dan Quinn's schemes, or just overall the domination they had against LA on Sunday? Well, they were overall dominant. And I think, uh, the, the offense especially was cooking. Dak was another four-touchdown uh, four QB from this past week. We had a lot of good QB performances. But for me, again, Dan Quinn scheming the game against Stafford, who I think coming into this week was the least uh, mistake-prone QB. There was a pick six to Deron Bland, who has, I believe, three pick sixes on the year now. Yep. Um, Just needs one more to tie the record, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, great game from him. Uh, the special teams got involved as well. A blocked punt for a safety. It was just an all-around dominant performance from the Cowboys in their coaching scheme. Coaching staff, rather. Yeah, no, and they, they beefed up the analytics department. They're trying to still figure out kind of some of the in-game, fourth-down decision-making, but if they start figuring that out a little bit more as the season progresses – this is a dangerous team and it's a team to be reckoned with. This isn't the team that you need to think back a couple weeks ago that got blown out in San Francisco. It definitely leaves a bad taste in your mouth, but I definitely think this team is learning from those mistakes and getting better by the week. Now, another guy that we need to talk about, a guy that needs some praise, Justin Jefferson goes down a few weeks back. And I personally would have thought their offense would be packing it in. They'd be struggling even with TJ Hawkinson, Jordan Addison. Uh, I, I did not think that they were going to rise to the occasion. And sure enough, over the past couple of weeks against the 49ers on Monday night and then the Packers in Lambeau, Kirk Cousins does his thing. And he, he obviously, unfortunately, tears his Achilles this past Sunday. But Kevin O'Connell is cooking right now. And if he can continue to do that, either with the rookie fifth round guy that they drafted, uh, Jalen. Jaron Hall. Jaron Hall. I knew it started with a J. Uh, they just uh, traded for Josh Dobbs. You can make some of that work. You get Justin Jefferson potentially back in the mix. You might be able to keep some of that offensive efficiency and production on the field. Brian Flores has got the defense kind of churning out some production. They're awesome in the run game. And uh, it's a lot of that has to do with how Flores kind of schemes up the defense, some of the blitz looks he gives. It's, it's very fun to see. This isn't a bad group. And this is a good excuse to kind of pivot towards the future now that Cousins is hurt. Absolutely. I think being able to pivot to Jordan Addison, who I thought was the best receiver in the draft, uh, is a success for him because he's had a great rookie season so far. They still have weapons like TJ Hawkinson, KJ Osborne. They go out and trade for Cam Akers, who isn't like the biggest uh, superstar running back, but he's been effective since he's been there. I think he even uh, outproduced Alexander Madison in this past game. But to do all that with a good O-line that they have around them, I think speaks a lot to what Kevin O'Connell is able to scheme up. I think the question is just going to be how effective is he going to be with Josh Dobbs at the helm? Or at least this week, I believe uh, Hall is starting. But moving forward, how good they're going to be with Josh Dobbs, who had a pretty like 
decent performance in Arizona to start the season. Yeah, I, he was up and down. Uh, he, he did enough to kind of keep the offense churning, but I don't think he did enough to win games. And so that's one of those things that it, it seems like it's more a move to stay competitive and not stagnant on offense. But I don't know if it's really that much of a needle mover. They didn't go out. They didn't get a Ryan Tannehill or somebody that could really help make a playoff push in that sense. Now, our best performances of the week, because we've talked about Jordan Addison and uh, C.D. Lamb was brought up when we were talking about the Cowboys. We want to talk about kind of the best wide receiver stat lines uh, from three really special players this past Sunday. The first being A.J. Brown with the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, he's continuing his streak of 125 or more yards in each game. He had, I think it's up to six games now, 130 yards, two touchdowns, which just lights out and was integral to their win against Washington this week. Yeah, he played bully ball. Uh, what I heard on, I think it was Caps Off podcast, is that he's like the true alpha X wide receiver. Like when when you think about wide receivers from like a decade, even two decades ago, it was just having that guy like a Andre Johnson or uh, even like you were kind of alluding to earlier, a guy of Julio Jones kind of stature, which is just to go up and bully people for the football. And that's what he does, down in and down out. He's been really good this year. Now, another guy that isn't necessarily as physical, but very talented, very versatile all over the field. We talked about it with the Cowboys, C.D. Lamb. He had 12 receptions, 158 yards, and two touchdowns. Uh, really did cook the Rams on Sunday. And it'll be interesting to see how teams start to guard this offense if they try to shut him down and then allow kind of Cooks and Jake Ferguson to kind of run all over, um, or if if we'll see kind of more of these stat lines from Lamb. Well, yeah, like you're saying, other people did get touchdowns. I know Lamb was the big, like the big gainer of this game, but Brandon Cooks did get a touchdown. Jake Ferguson did get a touchdown. They continue to feed Pollard, even though he hasn't scored in like four games. He'll he'll eventually get his, but like the Cowboys offense and the team as a whole is just incredibly deep, and it's going to be hard to stop them if they continue to stay healthy. And then the last of the best performance wide receivers that we have is DeAndre Hopkins. We talked about how he had the the Randy Moss stat line: four catches, 128 yards, three touchdowns. He may not have he might not have had like eight catches or 12 catches like CD had, but he made the most of what he did get, and that was 128 yards and three touchdowns from all the downfield passes from Will Levis in his debut. Yeah. No, he was he was a big recipient of uh, Will Levis chucking the football down deep. And it'll be interesting to see because that was a lot of the frustration we saw on Monday Night Football with Devontae Adams was Jimmy G could not get the ball to Devontae Adams. And there were two plays. One should have been like a 90-plus yard touchdown. And I think the other should have been like another 40, 50-yard touchdown. And it's just kind of crazy to think about that. If you can just hit some of those deep shots, you have playmakers with a trail and burst on this Titans offense with obviously DeAndre Hopkins. And if you can start letting those guys eat on the perimeter, it might open this offense a little bit more to where you're giving Derrick Henry running lanes. Uh, maybe you're giving Tajay Spears opportunities and kind of the screen game. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of how the offense progresses. Guys that are probably top tier guys that we want to put in that MVP conversation halfway through the year. At number one, it's the guy who's already the reigning MVP. It's Patrick Mahomes. He, he had a bad game. It looked like he was sick in Denver. Uh, I was below freezing. Obviously, one of the worst performances of his entire career. 
Still looks like one of the best quarterbacks in the league right now. Besides all that, he's leading the top team in the AFC. And if they beat the Dolphins on Sunday, they're only going to extend that lead in the AFC for that number one seed. Yeah, he definitely had probably his worst division game of his career. I think this was the first time he's ever lost a road division game, uh, which is just insane to think about. But there were reports that he had the flu coming into the game, and he didn't look like himself there. I believe he had a couple – or he had one fumble and I think an interception as well. Just not not himself that game, but – when he's healthy with the way that they set the team up right now, and especially if Taylor Swift is in attendance, they seem to do super well. So hopefully going forward, uh, they could continue all of that. Then you mentioned that they're playing the Dolphins this week, which I believe is in Frankfurt, Germany. I think it we is. have two, uh, back-to-back Germany games coming up. But you talk about the Dolphins, the number two guy we have on the list is Tua Tagovailoa. We say it almost every week at this point. He's operating that system at maximum efficiency. I think he has the lead in touchdown passes this year. I believe he also has the lead in yards this year. Uh, just outstanding performances from Tua so far. And if he can play within that system, getting the ball to the very talented skill position players that they have, it's just hard to stop the Dolphins' offense. I mean, he has over 2,400 passing yards. He has 18 touchdowns on the year. He does have seven interceptions, but I, he's he's completing passes at over a 70% clip. I know these are aggregate stats. They shouldn't should be taken with a grain of salt, but these are league leading kind of numbers. And it's one of those things that if you win this game against the Chiefs in Germany, it definitely moves the needle in terms of this conversation. Um, but what we have seen when the Dolphins have gone up against some of the contenders in the league whether it be the Buffalo Bills, the Philadelphia Eagles, they've fallen short. And I think that's that's going to be a big test for this team. And if Tua wants to be in this conversation, he needs to show he can put the team on his back and, and go get a bucket. I mean, you have Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle on the outside. Uh, they're going to be played up with uh, Trent McDuffie and Legereus Sneed, two of the better cornerbacks in the league, and, and they're good at what they do. So it'll be interesting to see kind of from a schematic standpoint how Spags kind of approaches this McDaniel offense uh, that's coked out of its mind so far. <laughs> and so uh, with that, there's a third guy, and this is this is a little bit up for, for discussion, uh, for debate. Um, I personally think Josh Allen should be here at this third spot. Uh, the Bills are five and three. They're still very much in the AFC conversation in terms of the uh, the elite teams in that that conference. Um, but I think you have a good point that Lamar Jackson should also be kind of in consideration for this three spot. I think uh, I think this could be up in the air. Lamar's definitely been safer with the ball. He only has three interceptions this year. But uh, the the counting stats for Josh Allen are almost unbeatable. I mean, he has the most total touchdowns in the league. You know, he gets a lot of rushing touchdowns just due to his athleticism. Uh, with I think he has 22 total touchdowns. Coming into this game, I think he led the league on total EPA. I don't know if he's still there or not. But, um, yeah, he, he's just been outstanding so far this year, despite all the Ken Dorsey hate coming from Bills fans. He's He's been lights out. Ken, I know Ken Dorsey actually moved up on your play caller ranking this week, so he's been improving as well. But the thing, like you talked about, Tua having sen- seven interceptions as well. Both Mahomes and Josh Allen have eight so far. So the, the top three MVP guys that we have have been kind of playing fast and loose with the ball a little bit. So hopefully all three of them can clean that up. Yeah, I mean, defenses overall have been playing better as a whole. So if you're able to generate a lot of explosive plays, it's almost like you can kind of con- 
forgive some of these poor mistakes, especially, and I know we keep quoting him every week, uh, but our dear friend Alexander Spear with his arm punts uh, with some of these interceptions, they're 50, 60-yard bombs on a third and long. Uh, you're just moving the series ahead by one play, if that. Um, that being said, we are looking ahead towards a revenge game this Sunday. We had the battle of the first three overall picks in this past year's draft last Sunday at Bank of America. This week, we host the Indianapolis Colts, and hopefully Frank Reich, uh, the head coach last year for them, is able to kind of get a, a revenge game on these, I, I would say injured, but they have a lot of their pieces on offense outside of Anthony Richardson, so they are still a pretty healthy squad. Yeah, it's kind of disappointing that we don't get to see Richardson against Bryce because this was supposed to be like the rookie QB gauntlet with Stroud, Richardson, and then Levis coming up in a few weeks. But they're still able to move the ball pretty well, if not better. I think they have been a bit better with Minshew at QB this year. But Minshew seemed to get injured in uh, the game against the Saints as well. And overall, I don't think the Colts looked too good against the Saints. I mean, the Saints aren't a super great team and they were able to perform super well against the Colts this past week. Um, I don't know the if Colts, that has anything to bode for the future, but it's just not, just not great. They, they jumped out to an early 17, seven lead, which is one of those things that if they were to do that against us, it makes it very intriguing to try to kind of claw back into that game. But after that, I mean, the saints offense couldn't be stopped by the Colts um, and their offense isn't necessarily anything to write home about. So if they were kind of able to move the ball at will, uh, you're hoping that Thomas Brown and this offense is kind of able to do the same. And if the defense can kind of take away the passing game, this really puts the ball game really in Jonathan Taylor and Zach Moss's hands, which, I mean, that's that's a scary one-two punch. And you wonder if Evero is, is going to sacrifice a little bit in coverage to stop the run or if he's going to kind of stick to uh, the true and uh, told system that he's had for the last year or two and just we're, we're, we're going to play the pass and dare you to run. Well, that was the other kind of note that I had is that we already are very bad against the run. I think we talked about it in the previous game performance. We've allowed 100 or more rushing yards in every single game this year. I think this is definitely the toughest test in terms of rush defense that we've seen so far. The Zach Moss and Jonathan Taylor tandem is just absolutely crazy. Zach Moss is going crazy this year. It seems like Taylor's finally back to form. He had a really good game last week. So it's going to be interesting to see what we do there. But I do think we're certainly healthier. And if we can build off what we did last week with Thomas Brown calling the plays, I think we can come out with a win this week. Yeah, no, I think I think that's very much in the realm of possibilities. This slate upcoming is a lot easier than our opening slate when we had to play teams like the Vikings and the Dolphins. Um, so it's it's very exciting that now we get to play the AFC South teams. We get the Chicago Bears upcoming. It's, it's stuff like that where they're very winnable games, and all of a sudden we could claw ourselves back into this NFC South title and race if teams like the Falcons and the Bucks keep faltering, if, if the Saints kind of keep in this muddled area where it's like they look good for a stretch because they blew the door off the Patriots a couple weeks ago and then they took a couple bad losses. So it's, it's one of those interesting things that if, if the cards fall into place, there, there is a chance. Couldn't agree more, and hopefully we're able to 
string together a couple wins this week. That's actually my perfect take this week is that uh, the Panthers will start a win streak after winning this week when we defeat the visiting Colts and Frank Reich will have his revenge. It's actually an afternoon game, which I absolutely hate. So hopefully we're able to pull that off, but I think we're going to win this one. Yeah, no, I can't agree with you more. Again, Definitely some bias uh, with that being the home team. But looking ahead, we have a couple college players we kind of want to look at. Uh, Who are some of the guys that you you see in this upcoming draft that would be a good fit for the Carolina Panthers or just guys in general you like? Well, from this past week, I didn't get a chance to watch too much college football. But one guy that did stand out for me is the Georgia receiver, Ladd McConkey. He's kind of lost in the shuffle of this huge, like really good receiver class between Marvin Harrison Jr., Keon Coleman, Romo Dunze, everybody that like we've talked about in every other previous episode. But he's still a productive receiver, and he's a guy that I think we could target with like our third or fourth round pick now that we still have all of our picks because we didn't make a trade. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Yeah, I didn't watch a ton of college football this week, but it's the same theme as every other week. It's the receivers dominating every week. This is by far receivers are the number one position in this draft class. Which is a huge boon for us, especially with Adam Thielen getting older, Chark looking kind of injury prone as he has been throughout his career and a uh, young, raw receiving prospect in Mingo, who, by the way, had a great game, first game under Thomas Brown's play calling. So hopefully that continues. Uh, definitely was high on him coming into this year. And he was he was showing spurts uh, last week against Houston. Absolutely. After the early drop, he really came into his own. He had that, uh, it was like a 40-yard uh, completion or it was like a 20 air yard completion. Then he got like 20 yards of yak. That was actually the longest passing play for the Panthers so far this year. So it was good to see him do what he was able to do. Like an open, that was like his big thing coming out of college when he was in open space with his, uh, athleticism and his big body, he's able to get extra yards. And it was cool to see him do that. I think it was early or yeah, early in the second quarter, I believe he, 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 he made a move. Uh, he went inside and the defender that took him down, you see him, hit Mingo and Mingo, he obviously goes down, but it's like the defender got moved by Mingo. And it's exactly mm-hmm. like what we were talking about with AJ Brown earlier. And some of those is that when you have these big bodied wide receivers, they'll wear on some of these smaller secondary pieces. And it was just, it was cool to see kind of us being able to impose our will. Uh, I kind of goes along with that keep pounding mantra that we're all a part of here in Carolina. And that leads into our final section. Uh, and that is our perfect takes. And this Thursday night, uh, we talked about Will Levis uh, being one of the more impressive performances from this past Sunday. I think personally, they're going to go into Pittsburgh on a short week. And that defensive line for Pittsburgh is going to shred the Titans offensive line. And that being said, I think Will Levis takes about five sacks. He makes a few mistakes throughout the game. Just simple mental errors that come from being a rookie in this league. And he's going to come back down to earth. So I I think that's the kind of prediction going into week nine. I think Mike Tomlin being the savvy veteran coach uh, and Mike Vrabel is good. So don't let me mince my words there. I just think this is a Tomlin get right game on a short week. I think that's absolutely fair. I, uh, when I made this, I usually make the scripts like a week in advance. I had the Titans when I wrote it down, but with the news that Kenny Pickett is uh, like going to play this week somehow, I think I got to stick with Pittsburgh. Uh, I just really didn't like the prospect of Mitch Trubisky, but 
the fact that Pickett's playing, I think they will be able to operate well at home on a short week. And the Titans don't have the magic that they got from the Oilers uniform. So I do think it's going to be a bit different this week. Those Oilers jerseys, man. I mean, between the the Kelly Greens, the Seahawks throwbacks, like I wish those were like the primary nowadays. Like if they could just go mm-hmm. back to those color palettes, it would it would make the uh, world a much better place. Don't sleep on the uh, creamsicles either. Oh yeah, no, I, it's we're so many weeks removed at this point, but yeah, I can't forget those. Uh, do you have any perfect takes for the episode before we wrap up? Yeah, uh, I mentioned it a couple uh, minutes ago. Panthers are going to win this week. Frank Reich's going to get his revenge on the afternoon game. And we're going to start a win streak. I was the only one who believed that we would beat the Texans last week. And we did. And so I'm doubling down. We're going to beat the Colts and continue a win streak against the AFC South. And then if we're healthy and good when we play the Titans, we'll beat them too. Uh, <laughs> the Jags might be a different story, but that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, I mean, the Jags, uh, we play them, like, what, Christmas Eve, Christmas? It's That's uh, week, week 17. It's our second to last game that we play them. Yeah, and that one, it's it's more, you want to keep it competitive. It was like what I said yeah. a couple weeks about, ago about the Dolphins game. If you, you lose that game by a possession, less than 10 points, like, you almost come out of that game like, hey, we, we stuck in it with a contender. Like, that's that's the feeling you want to take away from a game like that. Well, I mean, hopefully they'll have clinched something at that point, so they can they can rest Lawrence and Etienne that week. They they don't need to play. They don't need to risk their injuries, you know. But we'll see. Absolutely. Uh, with that, if there are any podcast questions uh, heading in the next week, shoot them to us on Twitter at either Patent Analytics or at Jacob Laquire or our podcast uh, Twitter page at Perfect Takes. Uh, We thank you guys for tuning in and we'll catch you guys next week.